Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Welcome to you all, to IWP, our presentation today. Uh, I'm Mac Owens, I'm the Dean of Academics here at IWP. For those of you who don't know, uh, IWP is an independent graduate school of national security affairs. Uh, we offer three full master's degrees, uh, 18 graduate certificates, and we now have a new doctor of national security, uh, state, state graph of national security, that we're uh, just now getting underway. Uh, greatly honored today to have uh, Alan Gelzo speak on Abraham Lincoln. First thing you have to recognize is that Al Gelzo is one of those guys that has forgotten more about Lincoln than most people are ever going to need, uh, going to know. Uh, his whole body of work, I think, is quite impressive, and it is, as I say, a great honor to have him here. He is the Luce Professor, Henry Luce Professor, of the Civil War Era and Director of the Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College. Now, this year he's on leave as the visiting professor of the James Madison program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He has his uh, MA and PhD from the University of Philadelphia. He also happens to have a Master of Divinity from the Philadelphia Theological Seminary. Much of his early writing was on um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, American Christianity, so forth. But as I say, he's turned his attention to the Civil War and the um, uh, Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. He is, I believe, the only three-time uh, winner of the Lincoln Prize, uh, um, which I, you know, in itself, for uh, his book, uh, Redeemer President, 1999, um, for his book on the Emancipation Proclamation, which, by the way, is the definitive study of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. And then more recently for his book on Gettysburg, Gettysburg, the last, um, the last invasion. I uh, tell you a personal kind of story. I, I was honored to be on a program with Alan, you know, in Utah several years ago. And uh, my approach when I talk is kind of conversational. Well, one of the things you don't want to be is the speaker who follows Alan, as you will see today. And for an entire week, I would be the guy after Alan, and Alan delivers these wonderful, polished lectures in a centurion voice, and as I say, a very hard act to follow. So, as you will see today. So, please join me in welcoming Alan Gelzo to our program today. I could probably benefit from being a little more conversational myself, <laughs> but being from Philadelphia, well, doesn't that explain a great deal? When you're from Philadelphia, you're kind of born with a certain amount of starch in your system, and that translates into the way that sometimes we speak publicly. But I will, I will try to bear in mind the need to converse 
So that what happens is uh, something that has a certain element of two ways instead of just one way today. In the weeks after Abraham Lincoln's assassination at the hands of John Wilkes Booth, many Americans struggled to take the measure of a presidency whose accomplishments after the surrender of the principal rebel field army a week before suddenly seemed so miraculous. In the streets of American cities, business stopped, hearts throbbed audibly, knots of men congregated on the streets, telegraph offices were thronged by anxious faces, and all were incredulous that such a stupendous, nefarious transaction had occurred in America. America mourns as she never mourned before. The eulogies that began to flow cast Lincoln in a variety of memorable poses, but no one brought the eulogies more effectively to a point than Josiah Gilbert Holland, an associate editor of the Springfield, Massachusetts Republican. On April 19, 1865, when he said that the most striking aspect of Lincoln was that I do not think that it ever occurred to Mr. Lincoln that he was a ruler. More emphatically, Holland went on, more emphatically than any of his predecessors, did he regard himself as the servant of the people, the instrument selected by the people for the execution of their will. He regarded himself as a public servant, no less when he issued that important paper, the Proclamation of Emancipation, than when he sat at City Point sending telegraphic dispatches to the country, announcing the progress of General Grant's army. This was a surprising insight, because it stressed an aspect of Republican statesmanship, which has been for too long invisible, precisely because Lincoln made it work so easily. And that was the necessity for the survival of the rule of law, even in times of stupendous stress and necessity. Statesmanship, like its popular kin, leadership, is an elusive quality, if only because it varies from context to context and the context of one political regime to another. In monarchies and dictatorships, the lines of a society are drawn horizontally, with classes of elites, soldiers, the military, and the administrators pressing down on civil society, which is itself structured by class. But in the democratic state, created by the political theories of the Enlightenment, the lines of society are drawn very differently. They are drawn vertically with the enjoyment of liberty and self-direction on the one side by society and the administration of the state on the other, and a middle band between the two created by law. If there was statesmanship in Abraham Lincoln, and not mere political prudence or an eye to the main chance, it lay precisely in preventing the rule of law in the American Republic from being destroyed by the looming demands of a militarized state over the courts and over the ordinary police power 
and on the other hand, the abandonment of law to anarchy. This was not a prevention which was managed with perfect tidiness. War, especially civil war, rarely presents opportunities for tidiness. But it was managed by Lincoln with far more consistency than is often realized, to the point where it actually comes as a surprise to hear Josiah Gilbert Holland's reflection that he never imagined Lincoln to have thought of himself as a ruler of the people and to realize that Holland was right. Lincoln's critics, and while he was alive, their number was legion, were quick to accuse him of reaching for dictatorship and ignoring the rule of law from his first months in office. Lincoln was inaugurated as the 16th president on March 4th, 1861, and even as he took the oath of office, seven states of the American Union had declared their secession from that union and formed a rival southern republic, the Confederate States of America. Lincoln's predecessor, James Buchanan, might have done something more aggressive to restrain the secessionists, but Buchanan believed that he lacked any justification in the Constitution for doing so. Lincoln could not have disagreed more vehemently. The notion that because the Constitution contains no reversion clause, it therefore authorizes reversion, go figure that one out, Lincoln thought that notion was silly. I hold that in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. But what did the Constitution actually allow Lincoln to do beyond saying that. There was not much in the way of example provided by previous incidents, by the Whiskey Rebellion, which had collapsed almost as soon as it was pushed, or by Aaron Burr and John Brown, who barely got their conspiracies in motion before they were shut down. The Constitution designates the President as the Commander-in-Chief of the Army, the Navy, and the Militia of the States, but without giving any specifics as to what a commander-in-chief's powers or responsibilities are. And it divides the war power by giving Congress the authority to declare war, to issue letters of mark and reprisal, to appropriate funds and to ratify concluding treaties. Lincoln would quickly find these restrictions so confining that two years into the war, he would feel driven to ask, is there in all republics this inherent fatal weakness? Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people or too weak to maintain its own existence? Lincoln's struggle to answer this question would begin almost at once after his inaugural in April of 1861 after riots in the streets of Baltimore attempted to obstruct the passage of federalized militia to Washington, D.C. That was when Lincoln declared a suspension of the writ of habeas corpus along the railroad corridor linking Washington and the North. Now, strictly speaking, the Constitution does indeed provide for a suspension of habeas corpus 
in Article 1, Section 2. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. But this is cast in the negative. And it's situated in the article which governs the responsibilities and activities and powers of Congress. Lincoln's suspension of the writ and the arrests by the military which followed certainly damped down Confederate efforts to rouse Maryland into joining the secession movement and thus surrounding the capital on all sides with secession territory, but it also triggered the first in a litany of outrage which accused Lincoln of outright dictatorship. Anti-Lincoln newspapers raged that the Republic had reached the point in our history when men on mere suspicion of being political opponents are deprived of their liberty and incarcerated in our jails or held by military power. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle called the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus a conflict between law and illegal violence in which law suffered total defeat. The Eagle, a Democratic newspaper, once edited by Walt Whitman, could not have known that this would be only the beginning of a series of constitutional issues generated by an administration which, in the interest of triumphing in a civil conflict, seemed determined to annihilate that space in which the rule of law keeps the state from encompassing society. And for a century and a half thereafter, the song of the Lincoln haters has recited verse after verse of horror at what are presumed to be the crimes of Abraham Lincoln against the rule of law. They include the use of the State Department to conduct arrests for suspected treason, the purging of government employees through the use of loyalty oaths, the creation of military commissions to conduct trials of those arrested in defiance of habeas corpus, the creation of networks of special agents and officers to spy on civilians, the use of the military to influence elections, the confiscation of property, the silencing of the courts, and even emancipation. Because what authority did a president have to emancipate anyone held as a slave under existing state laws? It would be perfectly possible to embark on a point-by-point refutation of these charges, but it would also be tedious. I'll look at some of them in a bit, but the ultimate reply to the charges and songs of the Lincolnators is directly in front of our noses, and that is the American Republic still exists as a republic. Its constitution is still the law of the land, and remarkably little changed from what it was in Lincoln's day. And we are here to discuss the issues of Lincoln's day without let or hindrance from government watchdogs. If the horrors of the Lincoln haters were really visited upon the nation by its 16th president, if that really had any substance, then one has to wonder what magic powder it was which sometime between 1865 and now, allowed us to resume the use of our democratic faculties. It was one thing for Lincoln to fear that the Civil War might erase the rule of law. The practical fact was 
that his management of the war was the major factor in why the various threats to that rule gained as little ground as they did and faded almost as quickly as the ending of the war that caused them. Surprisingly, Abraham Lincoln had a remarkably minimalistic view of the powers of government. This despite the fact that since he was always a Whig in politics, he gave far greater space than his Jacksonian opponents to the beneficial actings of the state in terms of funding infrastructure, protecting the development of domestic manufacturing, and establishing a common currency. Lincoln was, in that respect, more the heir of Hamilton than of Jefferson. But that made neither Hamilton nor Lincoln the avatars of the modern progressive state, which I suspect is the real object of the modern Lincoln haters' venom. The legitimate object of government, Lincoln said, is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done, but cannot do at all or cannot so well do for themselves in their separate and individual capacities. This included certain Ilya Monastery projects, which were beyond the capacities of individual effort, such as making and maintaining roads, bridges, and the like, providing for the helpless, young and afflicted, common schools, and disposing of deceased men's property. But the fundamental task of government, according to Lincoln, was the enforcing of the rule of law. Since the greatest danger to the health of society springs, he said, from the injustice of men. If one people will make war upon another, it is a necessity with that other to unite and cooperate for defense. Hence government. Hence the military department. If some men will kill or beat or constrain others or despoil them of property by force, fraud, or noncompliance with contracts, it is a common object with peaceful and just men to prevent it. Hence, the criminal and civil departments. He did not disagree about the need or the validity of the constitutional limitations of government. When his ambitious Treasury Secretary, Salmon Chase, agitated for him to expand the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation to include all of the slaves and not just those in the rebellious states. Lincoln's reply was a textbook of constitutional and legal self-restraint. He had issued the proclamation, he said, on the strength of his constitutional role as commander-in-chief. And the implication of that term carried that he could use emancipation as a military necessity to undermine the military resistance of the rebellion. But he would not do more than that. And he certainly would not, by simple decree, emancipate slaves in the states which had not joined the rebellion, or even in those jurisdictions which had been returned to federal control. If I take the step, Lincoln replied, must I not do so without the argument of military necessity? And so without any argument except the one that I think the measure politically expedient and morally right? Would I not thus give up all footing upon constitution or law? Would I not thus be in the boundless field of absolutism? Could this pass unnoticed or unresisted? Could it fail to be perceived that without any further stretch I might do the same in 
Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri, and even change any law in any state? Would not many of our own friends shrink away, appalled? Would it not lose us, the very cause we seek to advance? On those terms, Lincoln was confident that law should keep the state out of the affairs of society. But what is to be done when society itself becomes the problem? When, in other words, society proposes to deal with its own conflicts by a descent into anarchy? In a liberal democratic regime, we normally think of the rule of law as that which restrains the state. But when does the rule of law become something which the state must employ to prevent society from descending into anarchy? Lincoln was fearful of anarchy because it represented just as serious a threat to the rule of law as any other invasion, although this time from the side of society rather than the state. And he knew what anarchy looked like. Growing up in Kentucky and Indiana, there, as he once remarked, he had seen a good deal of the backside of the world. And as a Whig, he found none of it attractive. His earliest major political speeches denounced the mobocratic spirit, not military conquest, as the great threat to a democratic order. I am opposed, Lincoln said in 1837, to encouraging that lawless and mobocratic spirit, whether in relation to the bank or anything else, which is already abroad in the land and is spreading with fearful and rapid impetuosity to the ultimate overthrow of every institution or even moral principle in which persons and property have hitherto found security. And Lincoln invoked reverence for the law almost as though it was an incantation to ward off the evil spirit of anarchy. Let every American, he said in 1838, every lover of liberty, every well-wisher to his posterity, swear by the blood of the revolution never to violate, in the least particular, the laws of the country, and never to tolerate their violation by others. Secession, he regarded as merely another manifestation of mob rule. Just as a mob responds with violence when the rule of law does not provide it with the results the mob desires, so a political mob, in this case the Southern secessionists, had responded with violence when the November 1860 elections failed to give them the results they wanted. No state he affirmed in his inaugural address on March 4, 1861, upon its own mere motion, can lawfully get out of the Union. Faced with that, the seceders at once turned to acts of violence against the authority of the United States, which Lincoln deemed simply insurrectionary or revolutionary according to circumstances. This is because secession, Lincoln insisted, secession is the essence of anarchy. It is the nullification of the rule of law. A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations, and always changing easily, with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments, is the only true sovereign of a free people, 
whoever rejects it, does of necessity fly to anarchy or despotism. Unanimity is impossible. The rule of a minority as a permanent arrangement is wholly inadmissible. So that rejecting the majority principle, anarchy or despotism in some form is all that is left. A democratic order cannot survive if large parts of society conclude that they will walk away from law whenever they're displeased with its results, or in this case, not even walk away, but assault federal property, namely Fort Sumter, or federal troops, meaning the militia who were attacked in the streets of Baltimore five days after Sumter's surrender. Once let anarchy break over the rule of law, then the temporary euphoria of such liberation will make for a brief period of political exhilaration, but only in the spirit of the bungee jumper who has failed to attach the bungee cord to something stable. Such societies will, sooner or later, seek some means of reimposing order, but no longer by law. Anarchy alienates the attachment of the people to law and sends them in search instead of some other power to restore order. They will then turn to a towering genius or a Napoleon to cure the bane of anarchy, although by the time this alt-Napoleon does so, the last remains of a liberal democratic order will have crumbled away. Lincoln believed that the Confederacy was already turning that way, into a military state. The strength of the rebellion, Lincoln concluded in the summer of 1863, is its military, the army. That army dominates all the country and all the people within its range. This was what made peace talks with a Confederate government pointless, because for all practical purposes, there was no Confederate government. Any offer of terms made by any man or men within that range in opposition to that army is simply nothing for the present, because such men or men have no power whatever to enforce their side of a compromise if one were made with them. So the state, representing compulsion, posed one threat to the liberal order, but society, by resorting to anarchy, poses a threat just as great, and both were enemies to the rule of law. However, Lincoln did not hold back the forces of anarchy without putting some dents in the dividing zone of law from the state side. For every one of the complaints of the Brooklyn Eagle and others, there is invariably an element of truth. Union soldiers did interfere with congressional elections, especially in contested districts in the Midwest and the border states. In September of 1861, 19 members of the Maryland legislature, including E.G. Kilburn, the Speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates, were arrested before the legislature was due to meet for fear that their votes would tip the state over into secession. Two Major congressional statutes in 1861 and 1862, signed into law by Lincoln, licensed the confiscation of Confederate property. 
Either that used to promote the Southern war effort, or that owned by Southerners prominently involved in that war effort. The object of these confiscations was clearly slaves, and the rationale put forward in Congress was straightforward retribution. Then, Lincoln directly ordered the expulsion of former Ohio Congressman Clement L. Vallandigham from Ohio to the Confederacy after Vallandigham's sensational arrest and imprisonment by military district commander Ambrose Burnside for an anti-conscription speech Vallandigham gave at Mount Vernon, Ohio on May 1, 1863. But Vallandigham was only the most prominent among the dissenters arrested for criticizing Lincoln at public rallies and forums, and they included Philadelphia lawyer Charles Ingersoll, New York judge Francis Flanders, former Ohio Congressman Edson Olds, and Baltimore newspaper editor Frank Key Howard, the grandson of Francis Scott Key. In addition to 96 others whose thumbnail biographies are included in John Marshall's Political Martyrology of the Lincoln Administration, American Bastille, published in 1869. Lincoln also ordered the shutdown of two New York City newspapers, the New York World and the New York Journal of Commerce on May 18, 1864, and the imprisonment of the paper's editors, proprietors, and publishers for having published what turned out to be a bogus presidential proclamation of an immediate and preemptory draft call. But they were only the two most well-known arrests of journalists, which expanded to include James McMaster of the New York Freeman's Journal, Albert Beaulieu of the Philadelphia Evening Journal, Dennis Mahoney of the Dubuque Herald, and Samuel Madari, a former territorial governor under James Buchanan of the Columbia Crisis. And in connection with the Volandigam case, Wilbur Story's Chicago Times, a vigorous defender of Volandigam and critic of Ambrose Burnside, was shut down by Burnside's order on June 3, 1863, over an injunction from a federal judge prohibiting Burnside from so acting. And since executive appointments were, before 1883, unprotected by any form of civil service tenure, Lincoln unhesitatingly drained the Washington swamp of Democratic political appointees with a vigor that exceeded even that of Andrew Jackson. Of the 1,520 executive branch positions immediately under Lincoln's oversight, Lincoln fired 1,195 of their occupants which amounted to the most sweeping removal of federal officeholders in the country's history up to that time. But what the Lincoln haters who love to dwell on these events do not reckon with is how little any of this followed any sort of plan on Lincoln's part and frequently had no direction from Lincoln at all. Marcus Brick Pomeroy, of the lacrosse Democrat, abused Lincoln with frightful energy all through the war, culminating in Pomeroy's wish that if Lincoln should be re-elected in 1864, we trust some bold hand will pierce his heart with dagger point for the public good. 
Yet Pomeroy was never arrested. Nor were the Union soldiers the only ones busy manipulating the results of elections. In the 1864 elections, the New York Tribune howled that Democrats had mobilized some 25 to 30,000 illegal voters, all of whom went, of course, for Lincoln's rival, George B. McClellan. While New Jersey Republicans complained vociferously that as soon as the polls were opened, the Democrats had been colonizing. In other words, shipping voters from one polling place to another to cast multiple votes pretty extensively. And in Philadelphia, Republicans cheered a number of arrests made for illegal voting. And strange to say, all were engaged in voting the Copperhead ticket. Confiscation of property under the two Confiscation Acts took place on a large scale only in Louisiana, and even then involved only 24 properties. Neither Lincoln nor his Attorney General, Edward Bates, were enthusiastic about enforcement of confiscation, and Lincoln actually threatened to veto the second confiscation bill because he believed it was unconstitutional. Even the detentions of foreign nationals captured while blockade running amounted in total to less than 3,000, all of whom were eventually released on the appeal of their diplomatic representatives. What is actually surprising in the case of Lincoln's presidency is how few such dents were made in the rule of law, especially compared with what he might otherwise have done. Despite the sensational arrests of Ingersoll, Olds, Howard, Flanders, and the other occupants of the American Bastille, no mass arrests occurred. Overall, between 13,500 and 14,400 civilian arrests were made under the Lincoln administration, which in a northern population of 22 million did not exactly represent a Knight of the Long Knives. Of these, 866 can be considered political arrests, and nearly half, 40.8%, occurred in the border states which were riven by guerrilla warfare. Few of these arrests, apart from Volandigan, represented well-known figures of the opposition. Many had simply antagonized local military commanders or provost marshals by their anti-conscription activities. Another 20% appeared to have been smugglers and blockade runners who were being detained as witnesses for hearings in prize courts. And the detentions of Maryland legislators in 1861 were actually carried out and defended by no one less than Lincoln's Democratic rival in the 1864 elections, George McClellan. In particular, Lincoln made no move toward arresting the people who were in a position to cause him the greatest harm politically. And that was the northern state governors who were Democrats and especially Horatio Seymour of New York. Moreover, he did not prorogue Congress, nor did he close all the courts or make everything into military tribunals. Writs of habeas corpus continued to be issued until Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus nationally in 1863, but by then writs of habeas corpus had fallen to becoming a tool for obtaining military discharges. But the most remarkable restraint Lincoln showed 
was in one action which he seemed never to have seriously considered. And that was cancellation of the national elections in 1864. In the middle of a civil war, an emergency so great that the instability threatened by a change in government was almost as serious a threat as military invasion, nothing might have seemed more forgivable than the cancellation or postponement of elections. But Lincoln's argument was entirely opposed to the idea. We cannot have free government without elections, Lincoln said to a crowd of well-wishers after surviving the hazard of re-election in 1864. And if the rebellion could force us to forego or postpone a national election, it might fairly claim to have already conquered and ruined us. Moreover, the dents that Lincoln did make in the rule of law didn't turn out to have much permanency, largely because they were never intended to be permanent. The federal budget ballooned under Lincoln's presidency from a minuscule $77 million. Now, of course, you're thinking that's $77 million in 19th century dollars. Well, even translated into modern inflation-adjusted equivalents, that was still a federal budget of only $1.8 billion. Nevertheless, that budget during the Lincoln administration went from that $77 million up to $1.29 billion, in 1864 to 65, and 1.9 billion for 1865 itself. But with the end of the war in 1865, the balloon reverted to its pre-war dimensions. Between 1865 and 1871, it shrank back to a meager $424 million. And half of that was due to service on the war debt and veterans' pensions. And far from the federal government swallowing up state sovereignty during the Civil War, the war was actually a boon to the political standing and power of the states. In 1861, the northern state governors usually presided over their states with staffs so small that they usually included no more than a state treasurer, a superintendent of public education, a secretary of state, an attorney general, and an auditor. By the end of the war, though, the states had metamorphosed into vast networks of state agents, adjutants general and aides de camp, camps of rendezvous and instruction, hospitals, and veterans' homes and orphanages where the destitute orphans of our brave soldiers are to be the children of the state. In Massachusetts, over $8 million in aid to soldiers' families was dispersed during the war, almost twice the entire state budget for 1858. The post-war era, in fact, became the golden era of state government activism in education, in municipal reform, and even in women's voting rights. Unhappily, that state activism also included Jim Crow in the South. But if Lincoln's legacy was supposed to be a vast central government apparatus swallowing up the rule of law, we have been a long time finding it because it didn't really exist. Lincoln has sometimes been compared 
To Otto von Bismarck, as a ruthless manufacturer of the modern state, this comparison would probably have surprised both Bismarck and Lincoln, since Lincoln was neither an aristocrat nor a soldier like Bismarck. And if Lincoln committed offenses against the rule of law in the midst of civil war, it should be allowed that no handbook on how to wage such a civil war existed to warn him in advance. No civil war for dummies easily available from Amazon. The offenses that did occur occurred as haphazardly as they did, and with Lincoln intervening frequently to restrain them. Those who stress Lincoln's willingness to disregard constitutional limitations in the Civil War crisis have it wrong, writes Michael Les Benedict. Lincoln did exercise the war powers of the presidency aggressively, but he never claimed the right to transcend constitutional limitations or to escape democratic control. Indeed, he was constrained by the very popular commitment to the rule of law that he had identified as the only security against presidential despotism. Benedict's judgment is an echo of a contemporary estimate of Lincoln from William H. Smith, who met Lincoln first as a cub reporter for the Indianapolis Argus, and who went on to become a major business figure in Indianapolis. I first saw Mr. Lincoln in August or September of 1859, Smith wrote many, many years later, in 1832. During some previous campaigns, Mr. Lincoln had spoken in some of the western counties of Indiana, but this was his first appearance as a speechmaker in Indianapolis. I noticed that he never used the term obedience to the law, but always reverence seeming to regard that term higher and more comprehensive than the other. I remember very distinctly that he spoke of this reverence for the law as the palladium of our liberties, our shield, buckler, and high tower. For all that we today laud Abraham Lincoln for his wisdom, his humility, and his prudence, it is this fundamental reverence for the rule of law, which is the shining mark of his statesmanship and the statesmanship of any democracy. Thank you very much.